Hey everyone, Tom and I are here with um, Dan Shapiro from Wisconsin as part of our Rising Star series. Dan, welcome. If you could just um, introduce yourself briefly and then tell us about sort of the most exciting thing or things that you're working on uh, and then we'll discuss. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk with you guys today. Um, I'm Dan Shapiro. I'm a assistant professor of urologic oncology at the University of Wisconsin. Um, just as a little background, I did my residency training here in Wisconsin, and then I did a two-year uh, Society of Urologic Oncology Fellowship uh, at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and I graduated in 2021 and then started as faculty back here in Wisconsin. So uh, it's been pretty fun so far. And so, Dan, tell us what, I know you're talking at KCA coming up, tell us about that or about you know, anything you want that you're working on, sort of the most exciting things? Yeah, so I can tell you, um, starting in fellowship, I um, got interested in renal medullary carcinoma. I, I kind of selected a, I was interested in looking at more of a rare tumor because I was at MD Anderson and, you know, that's one place where you can study more rare tumors uh, compared to other smaller institutions. And so got interested in renal medullary carcinoma and uh, that's when I found one of my um, great mentors, besides Chris Wood, uh, Pavlos Masul, and we started talking about renal medullary carcinoma. And then we were brainstorming one day, we were working on various projects related to it, but uh, we started thinking how a lot of the patients we were seeing tended to be young patients, which everyone knows in renal medullary carcinoma, but they all tended to be very fit physically before they got diagnosed with renal medullary carcinoma. And we thought, you know, maybe there's a trend there. And so we started looking at these patients' history and noticed that a lot of them had either had military service or they had, you know, high level physical activity, like they were involved in college level athletics, or they were even professional athletes, some of them. And so that kind of started the ball rolling on our research project. And we looked at, um, how high intensity exercise was associated with renal medullary carcinoma. And so first we looked at it clinically. We looked at, you know, we went through their records, looked if there's any documentation of uh, high intensity exercise. And we found there was a significant trend um, uh, in the renal medullary carcinoma patients compared to age, gender, sex uh, match controls. And then we also analyzed their CT scans and found that their muscle mass in our renal medullary carcinoma patients tended to be increased compared to match controls. And so then we were like, okay, maybe we actually are onto something. So then we took it to the lab and then we started evaluating how does high intensity exercise affect the renal medulla? Because there's this hypothesis in RMC that um, possibly sickling the, the blood cells that sickle, because a lot of these patients are affected by sickle cell trait that a lot of times the, in the renal medulla, it's so hypoxic and such a severe environment that you get more red blood cells sickling. And then maybe that is what's causing the conversion into cancer. And so we actually took mice that had sickle cell trait that were generated to have sickle cell trait. And we put them on treadmills and there's actually like, um, there's actually standardized like treadmill rates to simulate like moderate and high intensity exercise in mice, which was interesting. <laughs> and then we had uh, genetically engineered mouse models that would express um, 
uh, luciferase in hypoxic environments in the kidney. And so we put the sickle cell trait mice and then we had wild type controls and we, we put them on these treadmills and ran them and exercised them. And we found there was significantly more hypoxia in the sickle cell trait mice and significant more luciferase expression, which kind of confirmed our, di uh, our hypothesis that there was more severe hypoxia in these sickle cell trait um, renal medullas. And so we think there's an association there and, and that paper was published and now we're continuing to explore that and looking at how hypoxia in that environment affects B one loss. Um, and some of that data is uh, coming out too. So I was going to ask, how does the hypoxia lead to cancer? I guess. Yeah, exactly. That's, so line, that's, right? that's like the, the, the holy grail question, but we think that the hypoxia actually leads to downregulation of SMARC-B1 and potentially even loss of SMARC-B1. And so we're working that out, but, uh, you know, without giving too much away, we, we have seen downregulation of SMARC-B1 in, in the these mice. So, so we think that there is definitely a link there. And, you know, this is the first possibly modifiable risk factor that anyone's ever really found with uh, renal medullary carcinoma. And, the, you know, the only real risk factor before this has been sickle, you know, having a sickle hemoglobinopathy. So it's something that potentially we could actually like intervene on. And are there other causes of hypoxia? I'm guessing, I don't know this. Are there other causes of hypoxia, you know, acute kidney injury or hypervolemia or whatever it might be? Are there other other chronic diseases that would cause kidney hypoxia? Yeah, that's a great question, and and something we've thought about too. Like, we've um, thought about things because it usually is affecting patients who are younger, and so we were looking into things like could pregnancy lead to higher rates of hypoxia in the renal medulla? Uh, certainly, like acute kidney injury or chronic kidney disease could lead to scarring and potentially uh, increased hypoxia in the renal medulla. But those are all kind of unanswered questions at this point. But it's definitely something that we've been thinking about. Are there data? You go, Brian. You go. I was going to say, are there data in other non-medullary renal subtypes? And, and I'm not aware of it, but maybe you know that this sort of chronic hypoxia, be it exercise-induced or otherwise, is a is a risk factor, or is it simply because of the sickling trait? Right? Is it because of the abnormality in the red blood cells that that pushes it over some some extreme? Yeah, we think that it does have this sort of extreme or potentially like a threshold uh, because it does seem to only affect individuals or, or primarily affect individuals with sickle hemoglobinopathies and the most common of which is sickle cell trait. And so it seems like there's more of a connection in renal medullary carcinoma to this uh, hypoxia-induced um, uh, cancer development. So, And Dan, just to rehearse the sickle cell trait link, that's within the same axis, you're guessing. Is that right? So why do sickle cell trait patients have an increased risk? Well, we think that the sickle sickling, well, so in one of uh, our studies that we did, we think that the sickling caused by the, uh, the hypoxia in the renal medulla, because when you have sickle cell trait, you don't sickle in the rest of your body. And really, the, one of the main places that you'll see sickling in these individuals is only in very hypoxic environments like the renal medulla. And so the conversion of this, the cells into this sickle morphology 
has leads to epithelial damage. And we actually looked at the, the microvasculature in the mouse kidneys. And you can see that there's increased scarring and there's damage to the um, microvascular microvasculature in the kidneys. And potentially that could lead to either more inflammation that could lead to cancer. Um, but still, those are kind of like getting down to that level. Can you guys still hear me? Yeah, yes, we can. Yeah, getting down to that level, we're still working on, but it, it probably has to do with damage to the cells or or uh, something along those lines. Dan, is this great news for my mate Dave? Because he hates doing high-intense exercise. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what my wife told me. She's like, you're just doing this to get out of exercise. <laughs> but yeah. I, mean, um, I guess the question is, you know, Tom defines exercise as walking to the corner pub and back. So well, in, your, in your studies, what, what defines high-intensity, uh, medium-intensity? Not in the mouse yeah, studies, so, but I guess in the human degree there, of clinical data. Yeah, so there are, uh, that has been one kind of problem going forward is like, well, exercise is different to everyone, but there is quite a, uh, a, a significant amount of uh, literature that has studied what, in, what counts as like high intensity. And there are actually like uh, guidelines, especially for like college athletes um, about what constitutes like high intensity, how long you should be exercising for and what type of exercise you should be doing. Hmm. Because things like, you know, lifting heavy amounts of weight um, very frequently for long periods of time, that's very high intensity exercise, leads to more ischemia. And so if you had someone who had sickle cell trait, you would recommend potentially not doing that sort of high intensity exercise or developing a uh, sort of program where you have uh, more interruptions, more frequent breaks for, you know, hydration and uh, rest so that you can recover. Uh, and there has been guidelines even published by like the NCAA um, or N, what is it? The National College uh, mm -hmm. Collegiate NCAA. Association uh, about looking about what constitutes a uh, high intensity. Uh, Dan, what's next for the project? Yeah. so. A lot of the work we initially did uh, was retrospective in terms of evaluating patient uh, exercise histories and things like that. So now we're prospectively evaluating. So we have uh, validated questionnaires that we're giving all of the RMC patients that come through the door um, regarding how much exercise activity they have. And then we can use that data to compare to some uh, national databases that have uh, looked at thousands of patients um, and see if our if our initial hypothesis was correct in a more prospective manner. Uh, we're still exploring the SMARC-V1 loss uh, related to uh, hypoxia uh, and some of that data will be coming out uh, relatively soon. Uh, we also have been looking at other ways to treat renal medullary carcinoma. So another study that um, I conducted uh, was looking at a, a small molecule inhibitor of the nettylation pathway, which is part of the proteasome pathway, uh, and combining that with the standard chemotherapy that we give renal medullary carcinoma patients. And at least um, with our preclinical work and looking in mouse models, it seemed that uh, we were able to uh, enhance some of the effects of carboplatin, which is sort of part of the, the backbone therapy for renal medullary carcinoma patients. So we have a lot of things uh, kind of in the works for RMC. 
Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. Obviously, a really rare disease without much known about it. So I think, you know, any any insights are welcome, especially therapeutically. Yeah. Okay, maybe maybe just to finish up, let's talk about just sort of career stuff. And you talked about um, connecting with Pavlos and MD Anderson for this opportunity. Maybe just talk broadly about, you know, you're a fellow slash junior faculty. How do you how do you find opportunity? Yeah. Where do you go? How do you get sort of those first steps taken? Yeah, I think a lot of people talk about like luck being in the right place at the right time. And I think that is true to some extent, but you also have to like put yourself out there and kind of make opportunities. And so, you know, I did a lot of reading and studying about different diseases and kind of found an area that was interesting to me. And then I found someone who was also interested in that same area and then just, you know, set up meetings. And so I think a, a lot of a lot of that luck or what you think was luck um, after the fact was actually you kind of putting yourself out there and trying to make an opportunity uh, where potentially there wasn't one to begin with. And I think that's, you know, you can see that with a lot of people. I think people who are successful uh, really put themselves out there. They're not afraid to ask questions. They're not afraid to like contact new people who maybe know more about a certain subject than they do. And I think that's really how you kind of expand um, your breadth of knowledge and also make more opportunities for yourself. Dan, can I ask you a question? My brother always said, uh, you know, to take multiple shots on goal, never actually, but, you know, focusing on one thing, he always said, you know, that can be really, you know, that can be really counterproductive because if it goes wrong, and it doesn't work out, yeah. um, you know, then it's much more difficult. Whereas if you've got five or six irons in the fire, and particularly if you're in sort of common things like prostate cancer, you know, you might be in a position where at least if the first two or three fail, then one of them's going to come home. What are you, what's your take on, on that? Cause you've obviously gone down something actually quite niche and quite rare and, and, and there aren't, you know, although not many people are doing it, you always run the risk, you know, it's going to be hard to attract lots of grant money, I guess. And yeah. so how do you get that balance right? Yeah, I think, you know, that is absolutely right. I've always kind of had a lot of irons in the fire, which there's pluses and minuses to that. That means you're usually doing a lot of work all the time. <laughs> but also, it's exactly like what you said, like, if you're, especially like something like RMC, that can't be the only focus of my whole career. And so, I do have other research endeavors, but this one has been so, one of the more successful I, ones so far. <laughs> so can I ask you a direct question then? Was this actually one of multiple opportunities that you were pursuing that happened to come home? Or oh, was yeah. it this one that you were most interested in by miles and therefore you just dropped the other ones and were lucky this worked? No, I mean, all through fellowship, through residency, I've continued to do research. Um, I mean, focus has always been kidney cancer. Um, but renal medullary carcinoma was one component of a lot of different areas of interest. So I'm also, as a surgeon, very interested in, in clinical research and outcomes following things, particularly like cytoreductive nephrectomy or even localized disease. And then, you know, going forward as junior faculty, I've also been exploring other areas related to renal medullary or to uh, renal cell carcinoma, particularly looking at things like biomarkers, which as you guys know, are we really desperately need, especially in the localized setting, now that we have potential adjuvant therapy, but we don't know exactly who to use it for. What's your next big project? 
So right now I've been look, I've been working a lot with uh, our pathologists and also some of our radiologists, and we've been uh, looking at the immune microenvironment in renal cell carcinoma. And so I've been looking at things like tertiary lymphoid structures and also how the immune cells are organizing in uh, localized disease in particular. And hopefully, you know, this has kind of been something I've been sort of building from the ground up um, for my own career as junior faculty. And, and uh, that's really what I'm working for right now. And I've gotten a couple of pilot grants um, to start some of these studies. And I have my departmental startup funds as well. And so that's been what's been really interesting. If you were able to go back to yourself five years previously, what would you do differently? What advice would you give yourself? Um, I would say just, I think, don't be afraid to, you know, don't be daunted. You know, everything always seems like really hard or challenging, or maybe you think like, oh, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing, but I think those, those things you figure out as you go. And I think just putting yourself forward and, and looking for new opportunities, those are always helpful and will only help you in going forward. I'm still not sure what I'm doing, Dan, 25 years later, but I, <laughs> I, I think you're, I don't point, know what Brian's doing either. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're, what well, point you made a bit ago that you sort of have to put yourself out there and not wait for opportunities to come to you. I find that working with a lot of fellows, that's sometimes the mistake is they're sort of waiting for me to bring them stuff and give them stuff, which certainly happens. But if you go with a bunch of ideas, some of which may be good and some not, you're going to be a lot more successful and, and create opportunities for yourself. So I think, I think that's really great advice. Yeah. I think, um, you know, mentorship is kind of a two way street. It can't be only one sided, you know, giving Agreed. and the other side taking. Agreed. So. Well, this has been great. Thanks for joining our rising star series. Tom, anything else from you? No, fantastic. Dan. Thanks for your time today. Really interesting. Yeah. Thank you guys. My mate, Dave will be delighted. <laughs> no more exercise. to take home. That's not the I'll, message you're trying to send. I'll text him. I'll text him urgently. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll take care, Dan. Appreciate bye it. Bye. Yep. Take care. Bye.